Could have been a contender. Could have been somebody. Today we start our series in the book of Jude called Contender. And you saw the kind of key verse flashed up there a moment ago. And I will read that to you and, and more in a, in a couple minutes. But I want to ask you at the outset, uh, if any of you have ever had this experience that I've had a couple of times, uh, where you are in a conversation with two other people who know each other from a different place, maybe they were college roommates and you didn't go to that college, or maybe they work together and you work at a different job, whatever it is, they have some shared memories, shared stories, inside jokes, and none of it makes any sense to you whatsoever. Have you ever been in that position where you're like, guys, I'm over here, didn't go to U of M, don't know Sally, can we talk about something else? <laughs> um, aside from being kind of confusing and awkward, it leaves you in a sense, with a sense that you don't have any idea what's even going on. You speak the same language, but you're not making any kind of connection at all. And if you could just crack the code, if you could just figure out what some of the words and names that they're using mean, you could actually understand what they're really saying. Well, I have to be honest with you, I think we face a similar problem when we read the book of Jude. Because the book of Jude is filled with all kinds of inside stories and shared memories that the book's original readers would have understood, and certainly the author understood. But us, 2,000 years later, we didn't go to U of M. <laughs> we got no idea what he's talking about. So let me set Jude in a little bit of context for you. As you've probably heard me say, I think context is very important. If you're going to understand what you're reading, you have to understand not only what it might mean for you today, but before you can even get to that question, you sort of have to understand what it might have meant for people when it was originally written. So the book of Jude is actually a letter, a very short letter. And uh, you may have, as I joked last week, missed the book of Jude on your way to Revelation where all the fun dragons and stuff are. Uh, and so you may have never actually read the book of Jude, but it's a letter written by Jude who identifies himself as the brother of James, uh, who was the brother of Jesus. And this is, uh, whereas some letters, some epistles in the New Testament were written to one church in particular, this one is what's called an encyclical letter, which means it's designed to be circulated to all the churches. Um, and as I said, it's totally packed with outside references allusions to writings and legends and all kinds of stuff that his readers would have understood, but we're going to have to slog through a little bit to get to. Because I'll be honest with you, I grew up in the church. <clears throat> I was in the church from the time I was littler than the littlest ones in this room and uh, went to, to church on Sunday every week, twice, and on Wednesday every week once. Um, and I never had read the book of Jude during my entire time being raised in the church. That might have been true for you as well. I went to college to become a pastor and didn't get enough there, so I had to go back and get a master's degree on, en route to becoming a pastor. 
And I still, at the end of all that, had never really studied Jude with any intensity until it came up for us to preach on uh, in this series. <laughs> How many of you have read the book of Jude through and through, like before this week? How many had done that? Okay, so you're ahead of me by the time I was 18. How many have actually studied it really heavily, like ever? All right, so I'm ahead of you now. That's good. <laughs> so when I did start studying this, it took me literally hours to kind of get my head around all the stuff that Jude is saying, um, references to these stories, some of them famous, some of them obscure, and some of them to literature that's not even part of the Bible. So it was impossible to make sense of this on a casual reading. Uh, and the challenge that we have when we read this text is that we can't get bogged down in all those references that he's making, or it's not going to make any sense to you at all. It's going to be like stuff you understand, then stories about the U of M, stuff you understand, and then inside jokes from a workplace you've never been in. So you have, I, I feel like you have two options when you go through a text like this. One is you can do what I did this week, and every time you see something you don't know, you can look it up, find out the history of it, figure out what it means, and then move on to the next part. And by the time you've done all that work and looked up all those things, you can sort of try to piece it together and you'll have a better understanding of the passage. That would be one option. And I would encourage you to do that kind of thing um, on your own time. <laughs> the second option is to do like your English teacher used to recommend when you were reading something and you came across a word that you don't know. What did your English teacher, if he or she was any good, tell you to do? Keep reading. Skip it. Right? Keep reading and try to, after you've read the whole sentence or the whole paragraph, go back and try to guess what the definition of that word is through what? What's it called? Context, Context clues. Right. So I'm going to propose that we play a little English literature game here and read through this passage and skip the stuff we don't understand uh, and try to get it from context clues to some extent. And then I will go back and, and sort of uh, illuminate, hopefully, what these uh, allusions and references mean, and then we'll, we'll, cl we'll close by saying, okay, so what? What does this, what does this have to say to me, uh, to us as a church, 2,000 years after it was written almost? So <clears throat> I'm going to read to you the first half of the letter of Jude, which is this, the portion of it that, I've, that I'm taking a look at today, and then next week, Pastor Brian will finish up the book of Jude. But we're looking at sort of the first half... Um, first three-fifths, maybe, uh, of the letter. And I want to take you through this, and I want you to try to get a clear sense of what this central message that Jude has is, because it's really a powerful message, and it would be a shame to get bogged down with all other stuff and miss the message. So let's start out here. I'm going to start out in verse 3 of Jude. And if you want to follow along, this, this will be on the screen, but if you like to follow along in your Bibles, there are Bibles underneath you, underneath your seat, and it's real easy to find Jude because it's almost at the very back of the book, but... Um, let me read to you this several verses here, and again, I'm removing the confusing stuff for now, starting in verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And here's why. For certain, certain intruders have stolen in among you, people who long ago were designated for this condemnation that I'm writing now as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Skip ahead to verse 8. 
In the same way, these dreamers also defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious ones. Jumping to 10. These people slander whatever they do not understand, and they are destroyed by those things that, like irrational animals, they know by instinct. Woe to them. Verse 12. These people are blemishes on your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 16, these people, these intruders are grumblers and malcontents. They indulge their own lusts. They are bombastic in speech, flattering people to their own advantage. So that was the easy part. <laughs> now what I'd like to do, uh, because I think that message probably came across pretty clearly, uh, having removed some stuff, is I want to go back through, and I'm going to tell you about every one of the references that Jude uses, the stuff that I skipped just now. Because while I think it is true that you can... You can skip and do the context clues trick, and, and you, that passage was pretty, pretty easy to follow. It's possible to understand what he's saying right there when I read that, right? While it's possible to take that stuff out, I don't think it's necessarily always advisable to do that kind of thing. And I think it is important for you to know what these references are. If you want to really study this book, you have to understand some of those details. So what I'm going to do is go through these. There are, believe it or not, seven allusions, seven references that Jude uses in that short 11-verse passage. Um, and I'm going to explain a few of them. And if you want to, if you're the kind of person who gets charged up by this sort of thing, I will tell you the, the references so you can look up the stuff later. Um, but if, if that doesn't turn your crank, then just listen and let your eyes glaze over a few minutes. It'll, be all, it'll all be over shortly. <laughs> so let's talk about um, this first group of allusions that, and when I say allusions, hear me, it's A-L-L, as in a reference to a, some, some other literary thing, not illusion, like a, something that's hidden, though it might seem like that too. Um, he makes three examples of past judgments on people who've been disobedient or displeasing to God. Here are the three things he said. These are in verses 5 through 7. That's the, little section, the first little section that I skipped. And it's funny, he starts this out saying, I desire to remind you though you are fully informed of these three things. It's like, yeah, I don't have to tell you guys this, but just in case there's any idiots out there, I will repeat what happened to people who displeased God. And here's three examples. The first one is the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness and uh, lost faith in God and said, we're never going to get there. And God said, you know what? You're right. You are never going to get there. You whiners. You're never going to see it. You're going to die in the wilderness. And then everybody else is going to get to see the promised land. So that's the first example he gives. That's um, Jude 5, and, it, and it's, uh, the story of that is in Numbers 14, starting in verse 20. <clears throat> the next one, I have to say, is truly bizarre. He talks about angels who have gone astray and cover the ears of your little ones. These angels came down to earth and slept with human women and corrupted the race. What a bizarre story. It's in the book of Genesis, <laughs> chapter 6. 
And then it's also, this, this angels coming down to earth thing is referred to in the book of Enoch. Where's that in your Bible? It's not. It's, it's number 67 or 72 or 85 maybe. <laughs> we only have 66 that we, we supposedly read. So the second one is these angels. The third example of judgments on the disobedient is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a story that you may have heard. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is the story of that is in Genesis 19. And it's these communities of people who had indulged their every lust and had become sexually impure. And God's uh, judgment on them was to burn down their cities. Not a happy story. But it's there. So Jude says, I don't need to remind you about these three things, but remember, the Israelites who wandered and complained, they died. Those angels, what does he say about the angels? They're kept in eternal chains until judgment day. So it's good. Ladies, don't have to worry. They're, they're locked up. <laughs> and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah, who were burned for their indiscretions. Okay. Then he goes on and... and, and says the stuff that maybe would be a little clearer, a little easier to understand, and, uh, but not for very long, just for one verse, because in verse 9, he goes on another little rabbit trail, uh, and if, if you liked the other angels before, you're going to love this one. And he says in verse 9, when he's talking about the slanderers in the community, he, he refers to this story. The archangel Michael, as you probably know, was, was burying Moses after Moses died, right? You remember that story from the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's a non-biblical Jewish legend. Uh, but because all the early Christians were, were Jews, almost all of them at this point when this letter was written, still Jews, they would have known this legend. They would have said, oh yeah, when, when Micah was uh, burying Moses, I remember that story. We're like, what? I didn't go to U of M. But... <clears throat> So what happens in this, in this legend is that God or the, or the angel, it's not totally clear, is burying Moses, and Satan comes up and says to him, don't give him an honorable burial. Moses was a murderer and starts disparaging this great leader of the Jewish faith. And the archangel Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. Right? Is your head spinning yet? <laughs> now you're beginning to see why if you read this straight through, it's kind of like, what is he saying? But he's comparing this slander of Moses to the slander of the leaders of the church, that some of these intruders that have kind of snuck into the community are doing. He's saying, don't forget, if you're going to slander a leader, you're going to have the Lord rebuke you. Okay, We're getting there, about halfway there. We have three more comparisons that come in verse 11. And he fires these off, bang, bang, bang. Right? As if it would be totally easy to understand. He says, woe to them, these intruders again, woe to them, for they go the way of Cain. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? People remind me of this story every time I tell them that my son is named Abel. Oh, you're going to have another one named Cain? <laughs> no. <laughs> Cain murdered his brother Abel, okay? 
because he was jealous that Abel had established a good relationship with the Lord based on a meaningful sacrifice. And when the Lord looked on Abel's sacrifice and was pleased and on Cain's sacrifice and was not pleased, Cain became jealous and slew his brother. If you read the King James. That's, that story is in Genesis 4.9. It's also referred to in Hebrews 11 and 1 John 3. So woe to these intruders. They are going the way of Cain, who was then cursed and sent away. They're going the way of Balaam. Do you remember the story of Balaam and Balak? Or Balak, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Balaam was this prophet for hire. He was a pagan conjurer, basically, who... One of the kings of the nation that was an enemy of Israel hired him and said, come and curse the Israelites because if you don't, they're going to overwhelm my kingdom and I'm going to be lost. And Balaam is perfectly willing to do this except that God won't let him. (laughs) And there's this funny story where Balaam's riding there on his donkey and there's an invisible angel and the donkey wants to move out of the way and Balaam starts beating the donkey and the donkey says, what are you doing? And Balaam apparently has no, he's not surprised in the least that his donkey's talking to him. He's like, I'm beating you because you didn't go on the road like I told you. (laughs) It's kind of funny, actually. (laughs) That story is in Numbers 22, and it is an amusing story. It's like the donkey's talking to him, and he's going, he just wants to argue with the donkey. It's not like you're talking. Anyway, so even though Balaam did not end up cursing the Israelites because God would not let him, He is universally understood in all the other literature to be this really kind of skeevy, bad dude who is willing to do anything for money, right? And so he's set up as a bad example of what happens when you try to involve yourself in the works of of God and God's people. So Cain and Balaam and the third one, they go the way of Korah. Who was Korah? Anybody know who Korah was? It's on the screen, I know, but he was a rebellious priest of Israel, Pastor. Yes, I know. (laughs) Korah was one of the priests of Israel, and he led this rebellion. He gathered a bunch of other priests and went to Moses and Aaron and said, "Eh, problem, the authority, and he he tried to rebel against God's chosen leader. You see a pattern emerging here? And he was uh, also consumed, so... He didn't, didn't make it out of that rebellion. <laughs> Home stretch here. Jude now, after these three examples, goes back in verse 12 to the stuff we can understand, and he says a little bit more. And then in 14 and 15, what he does is something very interesting. He makes an appeal, a reference to an ancient prof- prophecy from the book of Enoch, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Enoch is a collection of apocalyptic writings it's, it's a stretch from, uh, I think, the 3rd century B.C. until about the 1st century A.D. Uh, There's a collection of stuff that, um, it's all this sort of, it's, it's not unlike the book of Revelation or portions of the book of Daniel. It's, it's, it's all these prophecies about the end of the world and what will happen to all the terrible people at the end of the world. And what Jude wants to do is apply those prophecies um, which says that the Lord is coming with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. And and, uh, this is fairly common to want to do with apocalyptic literature. He wants to apply this prophecy to uh, the people he doesn't particularly like. (laughs) So uh, his enemies, these people in the churches who have crept in and are 
intruding on the faith as it was taught by the apostles, he says that, guess what? All that stuff in Enoch about the Lord coming with his angels to smite everybody, that's those people. They're going to get it because they have intruded on the faith as it was taught by the apostles. So, you're now experts on all the uh, literary allusions in the book of Jude. Let's pray. (laughs) That's some pretty wide-ranging stuff there. I read this passage to my wife last night, and she said, this guy kind of liked to hear the sound of his own voice, didn't he? (laughs) He did. Jude kind of did. But I do think, in spite of all the bizarre stuff there, that it's useful for you to have that background and understand what's going on. That being said, if we were to go back and read through verses 5 through 16, uh, skipping all of that stuff, as I did at first, there is still a series of powerful condemnations of all kinds of bad behavior within Christian community. And even if you're still completely confused about those, those wild stories, I want you to hear these condemnations about the type of behavior that rips communities apart. And when you rip a community of faith apart, because we don't exist as individuals on an island, what you do is you rip apart individuals. And that's why Jude says you have to contend for the faith. Sometimes your faith is something you have to fight for a little bit because there are people out there who want to destroy it. You might, if you're a scientifically-minded person, say this is the principle of entropy, where everything that's together wants to come apart. You might say, no, this is spiritual warfare. The powers that oppose us want our faith to crumble. You might say, yes, those are both true. Regardless of how you want to describe that, the reality is that we have to contend for our faith because there are people and properties that want to tear it down. Jude says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So let me give you a few examples and and just kind of draw these out uh, of the stuff that he says that I think we might want to watch out for today because I believe that this text, even though it was written centuries ago, millennia ago almost, has lots to say for us today. I think it's relevant The first thing is he writes against a heresy called antinomianism. Nomos means law. That's a Greek word there. So anti-law, essentially. Lawlessness. Remember one of the first things I read when I read through that long stretch there at the beginning? He says, Certain intruders have stolen among you people who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly. He's intruders who pervert the grace of our God into what? Licentiousness. What does licentiousness mean? It just means lacking restraint, particularly sexually, um, and, and that's what he's saying. That people have said, this is what, have you ever heard something like this? Jesus died for my sins, the ones I used to commit, the ones I'm committing now. So we're all good. That's antinomianism. They have perverted the grace of God into licentiousness. They have taken unfair and inappropriate advantage 
of the fact that God forgives our sins and said, therefore, I don't have to stop sinning. And that's a heresy. God's grace ought to move us toward a holier life, not give us constant free reign for self-indulgence. Now, if you were here uh, several months ago when we did our failed Christian series, we definitely hammered home the message that you are a failed Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and you are not going to be perfect this side of eternity. And you need to get that through your head. Because maybe you were raised up in a place that said, if you're not getting closer and closer to perfect all the day and it's not measurable, and if you ever sin, you need to repent again and ask again for God's forgiveness. No, that's a different heresy. That's why we did the failed Christian series. But this is the opposite. This is swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction and saying, no, if you really believe that because Jesus forgave your sins, you can do whatever you want all the time, no. And Jude is saying, these intruders have stolen in and made you think that, but it's not true. Here's the second um, principle that I think is useful for us, and that is an orthodox Christology. What does that mean? It means beliefs about Jesus and who Jesus was that are consistent with what the church has taught. You catch that little phrase? I've said it a few times. Jude, Jude says it at the beginning there. Um, Contend for the faith that was what? Once for all entrusted to the saints. What he's saying is that the apostles taught us one thing. Contender, you have to contend for the faith because these intruders want to change that faith into something else. And no, we need to go back to what is orthodox, what was taught by the apostles. And one of the things that the church has dealt with again and again and again throughout its history is what it teaches about Jesus, who Jesus is. Who Jesus isn't. And if you've uh, been part of the Journey Together class ever, uh, you may remember this. I hope that you remember it if you learned it three weeks ago in the Journey Together class. Um, but almost every heresy that the church dealt with early on in its existence and almost every heresy that it deals with today involves a misunderstanding or misapplication of the person of Jesus. Jesus being both fully human and fully God. The dual nature of Jesus. And one of the problems that Jude is writing against is this dismissal of Jesus' authority. What does he say? These intruders deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How many people have heard this kind of heresy spoken at some point in this culture today? In the church, outside the church. Somebody saying... Well, Jesus is a uh, great teacher. Uh, he wasn't really God, but I follow his teachings. Well, okay, it's a free country. You can do that. But understand that that is not Orthodox Christianity. Jude is saying, contend for the faith, the actual faith, the Orthodox faith that the apostles taught us. A third one. It's a favorite one of mine. He proposes that we ought to have harmonious relationships with each other. What does he say about these intruders at the very end there? These people are grumblers and malcontents. They're bombastic in speech, flattering people for their own advantage. 
Great sermon, Pastor. Really spoke to me. I like your hair. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't be grumblers and malcontents. If you want to complain about every little thing that happens in the church, go somewhere else. Actually, don't. Stay home until you figure that out. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear that. That's not to say you can't have legitimate feedback and input into the life of the church, but don't be a grumbler and a malcontent. And don't be one of those people who walks around using words that tears other people down or using words that manipulates other people to get what you want. Jude's suggestion is that this is not the type of behavior that's consistent with the teaching of Christianity that's been handed to us by the apostles. If following Christ does not change your heart somehow and remove that terrible attitude that you might have had before you knew him, if it doesn't remove your desire to control your surroundings just because you're smart enough to use words that manipulate people. If those things have not started to change in your life since you've been following Christ, you might want to revisit what's going on in your life and in your faith. Again, understanding that you're never going to be perfect, but you have to look and see, is your life of faith bearing fruit that's healthy? Or is it rotten and dead? And finally, one last one that I want to touch on. There are others that he mentions. I'm not going to get to them all, but the last one that I want to talk about for a minute is respect for the sacrament of communion. Um, he, he says of the people who are intruding in these communities that they are blemishes on your love feasts. We don't have love feasts nowadays. nowadays uh, but understand that the way communion was celebrated at that, in that day was it was an actual meal, a big feast. And they would remember Jesus, as he told them to, when they ate and when they drank. And the suggestion in the book of Jude here, and it's, it's actually spelled out a little bit more in 1 Corinthians, you may remember this passage, is that these people, when we're supposed to be remembering Jesus... And all that he taught, including caring for people who have less than us and feeding the hungry, are elbowing their way to the table, stuffing themselves full of food, guzzling wine until they're drunk, and completely abusing the sacrament of communion, eating and drinking unworthily or in an unworthy manner. Have you remember that phrase from the book of 1 Corinthians? Do not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean that if you're a sinner, you can't come to the table of the Lord. That would be absurd. That's the whole point. <laughs> what it means is don't do it in a way that, that's, that's bad behavior. Don't, and we don't, like I said, we don't eat around a table uh, having a feast. So this really is not specifically an issue for us. When we come to have communion in a minute or two, I, I, 
I don't want to see any of you elbowing your way to the table and pushing people out of the way and eating the whole thing of bread and drinking the whole glass of wine and getting a little silly. I don't want to see that. I've never seen that here, and I don't think I ever will. That's not the way we practice the ritual. But what are some things that we could say about this? If you come to the table for the wrong reason, I think you're, you deserve to hear these words from, from Jude. You are a blemish on our love feast. <laughs> what would be a wrong reason to come to the table of the Lord? Well, to make people think that you believe the same things that they do. I have to tell you, if you don't believe the same things that we do, you don't need to take communion. We're not going to look funny at you if you don't get up and go to the table. You can stay here pretty much as long as you want, as long as you're honestly searching out this stuff. But don't do it in an unworthy way. Don't come up and, and make that a prop in your little one-act play of faith. Okay. If you are a believer and you just come up because it's what we do and you never actually pause to do what Jesus said and that's remember me, you know, you might want to fix that right away and, and come anyway, or if you can't seem to fix it, you might want to take a little break and, and figure out if there's something else in your heart that, that, that maybe, you, maybe you've drifted away so far that this means nothing to you and Jesus, therefore, means nothing to you. But this table is open for us for the rest of our time together. And I do want you to come, if you're a follower of Jesus, and take a piece of this bread and remember that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And you can dip that bread in either of the goblets. We have both wine and a non-alcoholic juice, whichever would be appropriate for you. And remember his blood shed for our sins. But don't just remember I want you to realize that, like John Wesley said, this is the food for our souls. And just like a boxer needs to eat the right type of food to become strong so he can pound that other guy in the face, if you're going to be a contender for your faith and fight off those intruders, you need to nourish your soul. And I believe that the communion table is one of the ways to do that. So when you come, come in remembrance and come for a spiritual carbo load <laughs> or a protein shake. <laughs> okay? Let's pray. Our God, we give you great thanks that even in a book like Jude, which is frankly difficult to understand, you have meaningful things to say to us. And we confess to you that sometimes we've been the intruders who come in and try to screw up other people's faith and we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask for your help and your strength as we contend for our faith, as we struggle for it every day as we know we need to do. Be real to us in our hearts. Be real to us, Jesus, as we celebrate at your table, 
and remember you. Strengthen us for the fight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue worshiping together. uh, And this table is now open for the rest of our service.